From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. You're about to listen to our new show, The Groundsman Conversations, which is brought to you by Sports Digita. Sports Digita is a cloud-based presentation platform for rights holders, agencies, and brands that brings your story to life within immersive, exciting, easy-to-create proposals and presentations. Used by more than 50% of teams in the top leagues in the US, Sports Digita's technology enables partners to ditch PowerPoint and Keynote and create powerful presentations of their own that provide tracking analytics to help you understand the performance of your prospecting, cutting through the crowded marketplace to win business. So go to sportsdigital.com to book your demo. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Are You Not Entertained? Today, it's the Groundsman Conversations. We've got an amazing guest. Uh, we are one groundsman down. It's just the captain and myself, which gives him and I a chance to catch up on the stuff that has got our attention in sport. So... Let's kick off, Captain. How are you, by the way? I'm great, but tell me, what's wrong with um, with Grant? I heard a rumour that he'd uh, a roller had gone over his toe or something. <laughs> but... You never ask with Mr Williams, you never ask. He's just not here today. <laughs> oh, God. It's like it's like being in a Carrie movie or something. I mean, just, you never quite yes. know. <laughs> Listen, I've got one I want to throw at you as um, an opening bouncer. Uh, and it's a nice one for you. It's not going to be difficult, Giles, but <laughs> it's something that caught my attention. Uh, I saw it a couple of weeks ago and I kept it for you. Um, this was a, an article in the, the Telegraph about cricket mm-hmm. um, and the private school's arms race for cricket talent. Um, and the article quoted some stats. 110% scholarships for the best young players. Some private schools now have four ex-internationals on their coaching staff. of England's last under-19 squad attended uh, private schools at some point. Uh, Private, public, whatever you want to... We mean fee-paying schools. Yeah. Are are you concerned about the future of the game, Giles? This looks as if it's only going in one direction. In terms of the future of cricket or this policy of uh, funding and financing effective scholarships? Well, it just looks as if it's going that if you haven't gone to a private school you ain't going to get into the, the, the whole ecosystem of elite cricket. Um, and, you know, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? I remember the old stories of, you know, Harold Larwood uh, coming out the pits and, you know, getting on the Bodyline tour. Uh, is it all becoming very much a, a, a private school uh, sport at this point? Well, it's interesting. Both rugby and cricket have got huge traditions within the private schools in the UK. And they were probably a big engine room way back when. And of course, that's that's not about equality. And what I have also noticed is a lot of these schools are looking to bring in talent on a kind of inverted commas scholarship scheme to bring them in, but obviously that then boosts success. And it's about their own marketing that we're the most successful school on our circuit, etc. And there are one or two really top schools who are very blatant about it. And that begs 
all sorts of questions about how fair that is, even just for other children at that school who might have been going along playing decent sport and then they come to the sixth form and four guys from Fiji are brought into the rugby team and creates a, a, a dispels a... Good point. A, a, so one, there's an inequality within those schools and secondly, it also becomes hotbeds where these become elite academies. Yep. The, the challenge is... Um, it's not fair for anybody. It's not. It's not fair for people where they should just be that school it, schools that only exist in elite schools. I don't think that's fair or right. But if there is a dearth of other ways for people to um, find to be to be out of this great talent, then these schools are doing it. But it does create a kind of ecosystem problem, which is the haves and have-nots. So it does concern me, and actually, it's sort of directly relevant to my own. Uh, sort of my own household and children where one or two of the kids have been displaced by kids who've been brought in who are brilliant but it kind of then negates the ability for for normal kids who just who've been you know decent players but not great players so I'm a bit vexed by it I'm vexed for it because yeah, I don't yeah. think that's good for sport societally where anybody who's good should be able to be found and nurtured and taken all the way to the top but at the same time I don't think it's fair because some of these schools have just become academies of elitism and I'm not sure that that's very rounding in the real world either. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. I, I, I don't think it's black and white. I think it's nuanced. Um, American colleges have had the scholarship system for a while. Of course, we've had that scandal recently about how kids are getting into these elite programs. And, and I was reading about that this week. Um, and that's another story. But it's, it's not, so it's not black and white. But what I think I picked up there from you is that whether you like them or not, the English school system, private, public, whatever way you, you want to call it, the, the fee-paying school system, has had, in my view, always a lot going for it. And sport was a big part of that. You know, the gymnasium of life, getting on the sporting field and teamwork. You know, I don't know whether you read it, Giles, but I may surprise you to tell you that I was a big fan of the Jennings books when I was growing up. And, you know, that was all set around this kind of school. And um, the fact that your kids or other kids that are good that are playing willingly hockey, uh, rugby, uh, cricket, uh, get displaced by some person in a scholarship that's brought in, attracted by four ex-British Lions. And I don't think that's really great, but it is the way the world, my friend. It's all this polarisation into Hollywood and art house. Everywhere you look, it's the, the, the middle is being unbundled completely. And that's absolutely right. And even these very top schools that have sort of prided themselves on being the sort of bastions of middle class, former empire, British empire, all of that kind of thing, they're not those anymore. They are commercial entities Businesses. which yeah. are looking to expand their footprint with new schools in Asia and sort of... 100%. So you're absolutely right. This is now about creating a polemic. And the way to do that is to have the best A-level and GCSE results and the best sporting results and the best people who were through the drama, who've gone on to win an Oscar or whatever yep. it may be. Everything is commercial. And I know when I went to a public school, and this is going back 35 years, they were much more middle class, not very commercial. They were just old school educational establishments that enjoyed 
sport because they felt it was a good sort of educator for young young chaps to learn the ways of the world through sport. But it was not done on a commercial basis. A lot of these schools now are sponsored, and it looks like mini oh, yeah. academies. It's it's extraordinary. But as you well, say, well, yeah. Yeah, I was saying, Giles, that isn't amazing as you bring but I hadn't thought of it so much, but you bring out the parallel with sport itself, the governing bodies and how they were all a little bit sleepy and had different priorities and they're being dragged into this commercial world. And I see this article and, and, and it just looks exactly the same. It, they're businesses. They're just businesses. Absolutely. And actually, when you think about it, the blazers of sport and the blazers of school were probably designed by the same tailors. It, it was <laughs> it, it was the same people with a, a nice old fashioned view of the world, not wrong, but of a different time. And these, there are probably one or two schools that can still exist based on their massive tradition, like Eton, I would imagine. But every other school is fighting for every scrap of commercial advantage to charge fees at. Gosh, sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year now. I believe at these very top oh, academies, it's, it's outrageous. It's outrageous, which is really just mind-boggling. And they have to be the best of the best as as they recruit the children of the super rich from from all over the world. Yeah, and and you know we had Ollie Slipper on last time, and he got into cricket from another route. Um, I'm just worried a little bit that the. The people at the margin here are not going to get a chance at what is a great sport. I understand why. It's all part of the same theme, but it's it's a little bit sad. A little bit sad, mate. I, I agree. Now, Roger, I was dying to ask you, yeah, we've had the denouement of the, the Premier League. Uh, what did you feel about it all? Well, actually, the Scottish League as well. I mean, it's all been going on this weekend. What what did you think? You're a footy man. I'm intrigued to know yeah, what yeah, you no, thought. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave the Scottish thing around because the, the, the whole thing about... Um, Football now is that the only game in town is the English Premier League uh, and a magnificent finish yesterday. Um, what I would say is that two weeks ago, um, Guardiola was getting a lot of hassle because the line was he doesn't like leaders. He's the leader. He doesn't like leaders. Um, Man City in the last two games went behind by two goals in both of those games and came up with a result, especially yesterday. So I saw De Bruyne as a leader yesterday. I saw Gundogan. I saw a lot of them as leaders. So I don't particularly go along with that line. Magnificent product. But for those of us that look around the corner and over the horizon a little bit, there are a lot of worrying signs here, Giles. The English Premiership is getting really too dominant. Um, it's picking up all the talent now. You know, Haaland's coming next year. And, you know, there's a lot of turbulence and a lot of tension on the horizon. You know, the Super League is because basically Spanish, Italian and, and other teams know that the Premiership is pulling ahead and they can't compete. So they need something. Then, you know, you've got this other theme, I think, that's going to come up in the next 12 months a lot. The sovereign wealth investors are insensitive to costs and prices and wages. You saw that with Mbappé and Qatar. I'm calling them Qatar from now on, that team based in Paris. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, we have Haaland and Man City and, and Abu Dhabi, and we're now going to have Saudi and Newcastle. Uh, our American friends who are uh, investing more and more, and it's great to see Redbird very close to AC Milan at this point, they come from a world of, of hardcore salary caps, of marginality, of making this run properly. So you have got a dichotomy there of a price-insensitive bidder for talent and the exact opposite. In the same league, 
So I predict, Giles, that we had a great premiership this year. You couldn't ask for any more, but there are stormy waters ahead, my friend. Yeah, and I was interested on your last Goal on Goal um, show. I mean, you talked to, to a lot about it, and it was a great show that you and Grant put. I, I learned a lot. Thank of, you. I learned a Thank lot you. of my football through you two, which is, I mean, it's not 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 from a great base, but I'm 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 picking up all the time. I'm interested that you say it was a great a great Premier League this year. What do you feel about the additions coming up into the the league, or will they go straight back down again, or doesn't it well, does it matter? I, yeah. Well, well, not really. I mean, for Grant, it matters because Fulham is yeah, one of them. Yeah. But, but, but honestly, you know, the Premier League is polarising that. You just keep using that word into, you know, six or seven and with Newcastle, maybe eight teams looking for those Champions League spaces. You've got a mid-table um, and then you've got um, the people that try and look to survive. Uh, and they won't change very much. Whoever comes up, they will be, you know, the candidates to go down. The Premier League is an outstanding product absolutely outstanding it was proven yesterday and it's been proven over and, and it goes with it an, an amazing fantasy product that most people still don't realize the importance of so you know our guest today we're going to ask him a lot about his role in what has become the winning product there's no doubt the english premiership is one what it means now is where does everybody else fit around that where does uefa fit around it where does the so-called super league fit around it and what the hell happens to a bundesliga without any big stars anymore where bayern munich are going to win for the 11th 12th and 13th time in a row football's not in a great shape giles and we've spent three four years talking about all of this but i am pleased that you're following it because you know yesterday showed what a great great game it is no absolutely and, and ultimately sport has to be has to be real it has to engage the fan it has to have that you know you talked about it I, again going back on your show but I, I it's quite nice to be able to, to to look back on on shows that we've done and respond within them you talked about the belgian open in golf like anybody cared this is not this is not um sport yeah. that, that matters and sport has to matter and it has to be real it has to be things that has the big names in it has to be the, 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 the has the narrative that means that we are interested. I'm fa always fascinated by the success of the championship. One because of the gold of going up and being promoted, but also just yeah. that absolute anybody can win it. That it's it feels like every game really matters, um, and. I think that sad that it's a financial basket case, but you know, uh, I take your point. It's a great league. It's a great league, but everybody is dying trying to get up. Um, but it, this comes on to something I wanted to ask you about because you know, people that listen to this, you know, one of the big news stories last week or in recent weeks has been the merger of discovering BT Sport and what that means. And you know, because at the end of the day, the media sector finances everything that we talk about in the sports sector. Everything, everything, everything. So you've got to be a t pay attention to what's happening and follow the money, as I like to say. Well, what is happening is that BT Sport and Discovery are part of a bigger merger, which is between Warner and Discovery. And, you know, there was this wonderful article that uh, I was sent from in the Wall Street Journal. I think it was Charlie Boss, who um, is one of the, I think, one of the real talents in this industry, Um uh, he sent me this, and this article is astonishing. What What is going on in this article is that there's a new CEO who comes from a culture of Jack Welsh, Neutron Jack Welsh, who was a, a kind of like a very financially focused 
um, command and control operator uh, in the big conglomerate GE. And they had a, I think they had NBC in the media sector at the time. So this new guy has come in and he is not waiting around Giles to, to shake things up. You know, he's already got rid of a lot of executives. He's already questioning a lot of projects that had um, big names attached to them, like the Clint Eastwood latest film. And he said, is it going to make his money? Uh, the guy said, probably not. They said, well, what are you doing it for? Well, Clint has always been good for the studio. And he said, we are not in the friends business. We are in show business. So the point I'm making, uh, Giles, together with, you know, Ari Emanuel type culture, you are getting what I call the hardcore C-suite management now coming into the media sector, having less time for all the lovey-dovey, isn't it great? Show me the bottom line. Is it working? And that is going to trickle down to sport. And I wonder if you're not Hollywood, if you're not showbiz, if you're not box office, what bid are you going to get from these guys out in Hollywood? The guy's name is David Zaslav, known as Zaz, and he ain't messing around, mate. No, and I, I read the, you, you were good enough to share that article. I saw it, and I think you, you talk about the polarity, you talk about this kind of split, and it's just the, the haves and the have-nots. It goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, and you're seeing it more and more, of the dominance. And I wouldn't want to be a little sport right now where I think you get squeezed and, and you might have a little world, a little existence, but you're not going to, the, the riches won't be there. Yeah, and, and, and you know, we don't want to be a little sport, but, you know, I don't think we want to be an old school, traditional executive in the media industry. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I told you about seeing two ESPN guys in New York talking about the future and piracy was just leakage and nothing to worry about. See these guys here who I think are absolutely roadkill and are not on the wavelength of David Zaslav at all. They got to be really careful. And there's a lot of them around in our sector. What I call the relationship guys, the guys that had the good relations with the talent, with the creative, you know, if they can't stand up in a room in front of guys like him and Ari Gold and for 20 minutes say why a product and a project is going to give an ROI, they are hitting the bricks. And I'm telling you, this sounds awful, but that is the world we're in now. Sport has just started to come to terms with there is a new music on the turntable. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And you've been you've been telegraphing this for for a while, and I think it's um it, it's coming and it's coming very fast, particularly as as times are getting turbulent, right? And people are going to be looking. Yeah. As we as again, you've been talking about a lot, and Grant's been been very clear about these are going to be very difficult um, economic times that that face us. Therefore, businesses are going to be looking to be as as efficient as they can be, and only looking where money can be. Luxury is not something that that people will have much of. I suspect. That's right. At this point, Giles, let's introduce somebody who is could not be better qualified to talk about this kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm delighted that we have um, Barney Francis joining us very shortly, who for those particularly in the UK is probably one of the most recognised names in the UK sports industry and has been for a, for a very long time. Last year, he was appointed global head of production at IMG, which is nice for us because it bookends... The, the, the outgoing global head of production, Graham Fry, at, uh, at ING. Yes. Um, 
which is a massive role within the world of sport and none more so now um, within sports television, particularly as you talk about, Roger, about the changing face of, of television and, and the uh, polarity that exists. Barney was at Sky for 20 years before the IMG gig. Um, he was managing director of, of Sky Sports for a good long while, and he, he reported into Jeremy Darrick, who, as our regular listeners will know, was, was on the show earlier on in the year. And in his tenure as, I think, probably the most successful of the managing directors of Sky Sports, he grew the channel from five regular channels to, to 11 and added some of the premium sports such as F1, the Masters, the Open, NBA, and particularly the Premier League, as well as tried his hand in innovation and, gosh, Roger, our favourite word, tech, and started to really try and, uh, and innovate. Um, and you know, that business has grown. It certainly had its competition as well, but Sky remains really one of the key anchor points of, of British sport. And before that, Barney, interestingly, he was his hands were fully in the sink. He was a, an executive producer for both for both football and cricket with Premier League, UEFA, Cricket World Cups and Test Cricket. Really meaning that there are very few people who are better qualified, both at the production, at the hard end of knowing what makes good television for sport and then how to sell that television than Barney Francis. And it is a real joy as someone who you and I have both known for for a very long time to have on the show. Barney, a very warm welcome to Are You Not Entertained? I hope you're sitting comfortably because you've got an hour with me and Roger Mitchell, which some people say is one of the more uncomfortable places to be in the sports industry right now. Uh, well, um, <laughs> I'm delighted to be here. Thank you very much for, um, for having me. Um, and having witnessed and listened to many uh, of your podcasts, I know that's just not true. So uh, I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Barney, lovely to see you. And that is the point. I, I don't know what I'm meant to be these days, either a terrier or somebody that is uh, too kind and too too forgiving for people that come on. So um, I'm sure we'll find some middle ground there. Uh, and there will always be a curveball down the line, I'm sure. Well, we once described you, uh, Roger, as, um, t- uh, given that the, the great man passed away, we, we did describe you as the Rodney Marsh of podcasting, which I think you took as a compliment, <laughs> a compliment and so it should be. I did, I did, I did. Well, look, as in, as we know, in this this great industry of ours, um, there is um, there is no such thing as a um, a gentle half volley. There is no such thing as a uh, gentle <laughs> flow down the river. It um, it is an industry that takes all sorts of twists and turns. So. Uh, uh, so I look forward to... Um, well said. Well, let me let me try and give you a nice half volley. Barney, you've been at the sort of forefront of, of, of the sporting world and particularly here in the UK, but now with a very much a global remit for, for a very long time. And you were definitely always one of the people to know in the sports industry. And, and I've known you for a, a good long time, as has Rog. I've never asked you this before, though. Where did it all start for you? I don't mean career, but all of us share a passion for sport. That tends to be the thing that everybody in the sports industry has in common. What was what was yours? Where did it all start with as, as a fan? And when did you know that you wanted to try and find your way into the sports industry? So I think, um, I think look, for me, I was always um, fascinated by and passionate about sport. Um, as a very amateur uh, player, I played everything I possibly could. Um, I went to state school throughout my life, uh, and so there were some sports that weren't actually open to me. I never played rugby in my life, and yet 
watch rugby now and wish that I had for all the uh, for all the positives that it has and wider influence that it has. So I always played sport. My father was a uh, sports journalist and a TV presenter. So right from a very early age, uh, I would be following him around as a, um, you know, anything from as a, a four-year-old. I remember uh, he worked at, um, at Pebble Mill, uh, BBC in uh, Edgbaston there in Birmingham. So one of my earliest memories is of him taking me to the Aston Villa training ground. Uh, and uh, I'm an Aston Villa fan now. So obviously we're speaking now the day after the conclusion to the Premier League, uh, where I saw Aston Villa almost cause a um, an incredible upset in a, an amazing twist. So right from an early age, um, I was around my my father, and I was fascinated by um, by the industry. Um, his job changed a lot over the years, so uh, we moved house a lot. So I was the new boy at school on a Monday at far too many schools, just because uh, mm. our ge- geographic location used to change. Uh, and I sort of quickly, very quickly learned to the power of sport um, for a, you know, a, a young boy. And I've got a, my, old, my oldest brother is two years older than me. And he experienced the same, that when you start a new school on a Monday, uh, and we did it so often, um, you only really had to wait till Wednesday for the first games lesson. If you played sport to, to any proficiency to be instantly accepted um, or sorry, your, the acceleration of your acceptance into a new school. Uh, would uh, would increase. So I really saw the the value of sport and the power of sport um, uh, to that extent. And as I said I'd uh, I'd play in anything that I, I possibly could. And then following my father around as well. You know, I used to spend Saturdays. Um, I mean, here's one of my my fondest memories is of him as a um, as a writer. He was football correspondent for the Sunday Times for a while. So on a Saturday, obviously, he used to go to a three o'clock kickoff. Uh, and I would go and sit next to him in the press box where each press position had one of those old phones. And at half time, he'd have to phone in his first 200 words, right? First half. And then as soon as we uh, the game finished, we'd go to the manager's press conference. He would um, scribble down his notes and then we'd jump in the car. And he knew that he had about 45 minutes before he had to submit his next 600 words. So I'd be sat in the passenger seat with a pad and pen as he is relaying his uh, his Amazing. next 600 words. Uh, Amazing. And, then, and then we'd, of course, stop at a service station where he'd go and do a transfer charge call in a red telephone box back to the um, dub editor at the desk at the Sunday Times. And I would sit in the car listening to Sports Report. And then he'd jump back in the car and uh, start... Um, you know, calling out his next three or four hundred words that I would then scribble on a pad, and by that time we'd be home, and he'd be finding the last bit. So, I was fascinated by the journalistic side, and as I said, he was also a TV presenter, so I was in studios and uh, studio environment right from a very early age. So I was in, I was in no doubt when I went to university that I wanted to work in um, in the broadcast industry and, uh, of course, into uh, into sport. So that's where it kind of, that's kind of where it first started. And was there a particular sport that you had the passion for? I mean, was there one that, you, I mean, obviously you've mentioned Villa and and, and obviously oh. last week last weekend, well, it was one yeah. hell of a game. But was was yeah. that your passion or was it cricket? Was, it, was there one thing that really stood out, given that football and cricket are the two sports from an executive producer point of view you've been yeah you've been heralded for yeah well I loved I always loved football and I always loved cricket and I played them both I sometimes um in conversations with my mates we talk back to who were our heroes 
which often give you a guide as to what are the sports that you're completely passionate about. So if I think of, I was born in 71, so if I think of early 80s, um, you know, my heroes would have been, uh, um, you know, Aston Villa obviously won the, won the league and then won the European Cup in the early 80s. So it would be uh, Dennis Mortimer or Gary Shaw or Tony Morley. Um, I was an absolute, uh, the biggest fan of Ian Botham. Right, so the cricket kit I wanted was Duncan Fernley attack with Botham stuff. Um, but Daly Thompson, right, what he achieved in Moscow in 80 and then repeated in LA in 84, I wanted to be Daly Thompson. So there was one year at school where we did do athletics and I'd run the 800, I'd throw the javelin and then I'd be kind of, you know, first reserve in the long jump. I wanted to do all 10 events. Um Formula One at the time, I was a big fan of Keke Rosberg, who was this wildfire fin in a uh, in a substandard Williams, but used to throw his car around the track. And I loved the flair of that. Um, what else would I have been into? I mean, back then, of course, it was free-to-air television, so... Uh, it was available all the time and on all the time. It just felt yeah. like it was a litany of just high-achieving brilliance all the time. I'm sure it Absolutely. wasn't, but it felt like it. Well, it was funny, but it's funny you should say that because in later life when um, when I was the exec producer of cricket at Sky and we took the, uh, uh, my, my predecessor as MD, Vic, did the big deal in 2004 for the cricket rights in 2006. Um, when we started covering all the test cricket in 2006, part of the story we had to tell was um, the justification that it wasn't just about money, that we loved what we did. And I was very passionate producer of of sky sports cricket and i knew that we could never match the audiences of channel four the previous year and the ashes but i didn't want people saying and the coverage is no good um you know i wanted the coverage to be uh, exemplary but anyway part of that story that first year 2006 was saying that we're going to show every single ball we're not going to be cutting away to the racing as channel four had to do or asking them to start early and i do remember we actually dug in a bit to 1981 and Beefy's Ashes. Uh, and we all now remember that as um, an incredible day's test cricket where both and first, then Willis, swung it all in our favour. And we all sat there at home watching it from 10.30 in the morning till 6.30 evening. That's not the case. BBC had to cut away, I think that day, seven times for other programming. Right. But we don't remember that. Right. Because we think of the nostalgia. Yeah. Right. If I'm thinking of David yeah. Thompson, if I compare the 84 Olympics in L.A. to what the BBC did in 2012, in my mind, they're just the same thing. But of course, they weren't. Right. You had one yeah. feed in 84 and it was at the kind of director's mercy, whereas you spin forward to 2012 and since where the BBC, you know, had 12 digital feeds, anything you want to watch in its entirety. The game changed completely over the last 30 years. Um, and it is, um, we sort of, we look back fondly and mistily eyed at the days of free to air, but it certainly wasn't wall to wall. Well said, Barney. And, and you know, you mentioned Dear Vic there. Mm. Um, I, I think people forget the impact that the, in, the, the arrival of Sky Sports had on, on our industry. Yeah. I mean, we are still feeling the, the ripples uh, from, from what you guys started. And most people, well, guys my generation will, but a lot of younger listeners won't know. You guys reinvented also production, mm. and it was hardcore. I mean, like you, Andy Melville, you know, Vic, 
they weren't messing around, were they? Uh, but this wasn't this wasn't softball. You had high high standards, and if someone went wrong, everybody heard about it in that office, didn't they? Oh yeah. Look, I think I think the key thing is uh, there, Roger, is when you're a. Uh, I mean, Sky were pretty pioneering. Well, let's let's go back to when uh, Rupert bet the farm. It was we're going to put all this money into a satellite TV huge choice, multi-channel future world. And certainly on the sports side, um, what you realise, and I joined, I joined Sky in 96 as a uh, assistant producer. I'd been up in um, yeah. Liverpool working on uh, this morning, my first job outside of uh, university, started as a runner. And, okay, the subject matter didn't particularly appeal, but it was live TV. Um I'd gone for a, I'd applied for a job. The, the Media Guardian on a Monday used to adver- be the place to advertise media jobs. This was before the internet. And I'd applied for a job at the BBC as, an, as a trainee assistant producer uh, and uh, made it through to the second round and then got rejected. And then about a month later, there was a job advert for Sky. So I applied for that, drove down, had an interview and got the job. So I was delighted. And Sky was just going from one sports channel to two. What I learned right from the start, I was you know, second lowest ladder, second lowest rung on that ladder. What I learned from the very early age was we have to make sure that we are providing value for people who are parting with their hard-earned money to subscribe to Sky Sports. And that's a, um, that's a kind of a dedication, which uh, I certainly think, I like to think that I continued through being um, later, I was exec producer of cricket and then of football before becoming MD. And right through my years as MD, my waking thought and my sleeping thought would be, are we providing value? Because we're asking people yeah. to part yeah. with their hard money on a subscription basis. Uh, and we need to make sure that they don't wake tomorrow morning thinking, mm, I'm not sure that I'm getting the same value I used to get. And that kind of permeates through all the, the business of Sky Sports and Sky and also through the production teams. You know, we used to say it was never written down anywhere, but I sort of used to extol this, this, this value of we need to make sure that today's show is better than yesterday's. It doesn't mean yesterday's wasn't any good. Yeah. But, you know, the life that, and the society that we live in now, that if you're not getting incrementally better value every day, then you start to question things. And that was that was that was the way that Sky Sports approached things. It is we have to provide value to our customers and our viewers. Um, but that was that was the outward facing bit. The inward facing bit was it was a team of people who were so dedicated to creating and telling great stories about sport because they loved it too. Yeah, no, I, I recognise all of that uh, from two different perspectives. I don't know whether you knew a guy called Jerry Logan mm. uh, who um, of course I. I yeah, I did a lot of work with him on Italian yeah. football when I was doing this in my kind of like <laughs> in my hobby type thing. But but you know the thing I wanted to ask you, Barney, really competitive, high quality, upper out type organization, real standards, really no no acceptance of mediocrity. Mm. And in this time, you know, you guys are there, Vicks in that role, deciding the future of the sports industry. And then the other big job was um, the head of the English Premiership. You came out from the industry point of view, I think it would be fair to say, relatively as not the front runner to replace Vic, but it was you. Can you give people an, a, an idea of 
how that came about, what the thinking was, why didn't they go for some of the other candidates that would have cut off their arm to get Vic's job? How did it end up with you? Um, uh, I don't know, uh, to be honest, Roger. I think um, sometimes over the next few years, I felt uh, lucky. And then I then I sort of would refresh that and say, well, no, perhaps the timing was just right. So was it luck or was it was it timing? But I'd been there um, a long time. I'd like to think that uh, I'd taken the cricket team from 2000 through to 2007 through a huge transitionary period from overseas tours uh, to um, to having you know 24 not 24 seven but sort of certainly 12 months of the year cricket on the channel uh, and. Um, and I had a good relationship with with Vic, and he proposed me. As you said, there were lots of other uh, people interested in the job. Um, uh, Jeremy Darrick had just become CEO, placing James, who'd moved up to uh, yeah. the chairman. So Jeremy was was uh, probably a year into seat when I was appointed, um, and. Um, I'm very grateful that he took that risk. You know, I spent a bit of time with him. I talked about my vision for Sky Sports and my passion and all those sorts of things. Um, so I can't tell you what uh, what, what tipped me um, over the edge and into the job. Um, I did spend, I was fortunate enough, before I'd been even actually formally handed the job, uh, Vic in his last six months um, encouraged me to live in his office for six months. So I'd been... You know, I've been a producer and exec producer for a long time, but I hadn't really been on the business side because Vic kept that quite close to his chest. Yes. So I had uh, I had six months in the lead up to Vic walking away, where uh, every day I was in his office, and it would be either uh, joining him in meetings with um, with rights holders, uh, or being in on phone calls, or just picking his brains um, on the wider business. Because there's a real difference between amazing, real difference between running a production team and understanding the commercial realities of well that, that's the point yeah you, you you know and and i think i think on reflection i don't think i know on reflection it was an amazing appointment uh, history shows that but you know if you look at vic's background himself i think he probably saw a little bit of himself yeah. in you yeah. similar backgrounds and you know so you've come up from the content production yeah. side and the whole rights negotiation commercial side he just said, look, he's my guy and yeah. I'm just going to for six months prepare him. And and what a decision that was. Well, look, I mean, it's very kind of you to say those things. And I do think that's, I do think Vic probably did see something of uh, him in me um, because he would always say to me, you know, this part of the business needs to be run by somebody who's come through the production line. And it goes back to kind of what I was saying, which is waking every day thinking, what value are we providing for our customers? You know, I look at... Um, Let's say, for example, I've got where, where I'm sitting now in a um, in a meeting room here. Sky Sports News is on the television. I look at the uh, ticker going across the um, the bottom of the screen, the yellow ticker. And uh, I always used to remark, if I'd sit with the um, with the creative team, we might say, right, we need to do something about that graphic, right? Is it the font we don't quite like? Is it the color? Should it all be uppercase? Should it be upper and lower? And we might debate that for an hour. Um, and I would say at the end of it. If only our customers knew how much attention to detail we give to on screen, they would say, God, why are you wasting an hour thinking about that? But it was really important because we had to get 
the tiny finer details absolutely right. I always used to say, if we present ourselves as the oracle of sport, then we have to be the oracle of sport. We can't make mistakes. We just can't make mistakes because if I'm paying whatever it is for my monthly subscription, I don't expect you to make mistakes. You know, I don't expect, I use an Apple iPhone. I don't expect Apple to make mistakes. So Sky Sports shouldn't have to make mistakes. So I think it was that sort of attention to production detail that Vic um, Vic saw in me as well. And I, and you know, I'm grateful that he sort of um, backed me to get to understand the commercial reality of the business. And when you kind of move from production into running the business, you know, the bit that you really miss is sitting in the chair, right, creating the show. <laughs> Same time, I knew that I would love the I would love the business side of it, and 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 not just the Sky Sports business, but where it fitted into the um, the wider business. You know, and being part of Jeremy's exec team for. Uh, well over a decade gave me fascinating insight to all all parts of the business you and i inherited quite big roles at quite a young age um mm. at the same sort of time now that you could it's it's history you've left you've left sky how nervous yeah. were you when you got that job you yeah you were very very much an established producer but very big yeah. shoes to fill but also learning new skills did did you have moments that sort of introspection when you're shaving in the morning looking at yourself in the mirror going Gee, this is scary. What I've got to do? You know what? So I'll, um, so I'll, I'll, I'll give you a tiny um, story, which will probably answer your question. Um, so I'm 37, and I get, and I get the job, right? But we were quite a, we were a company that don't forget had, had appointed James as CEO, or his father helped appoint him as CEO early in his 30s. So I was 37, uh, and I, I turn up on my first day. Vic had literally said to me on the Friday, right, that's it, I'm done, right? That, that was my date. And I sort of said, oh, does that mean you're not going to be around at all? And he said, no, but I'm available to you a couple of days a month. So I turned up on the Monday at seven o'clock in the morning and Vic had a corner office with other offices to its left and to its right. And the assistants would sit out in the middle. And I opened the door uh, into his office and it had been... Um, you know, Vic was a, it's well publicized, Vic was a smoker. So I'd had the office um, <laughs> um, uh, uh, de-smoked over the weekend. And I opened the door to the office. And then I went and sat where the assistants were. Because I felt like the biggest imposter, right? Here was a, here was an industry veteran. I had now actually had the physical key to the office. I opened the office. I left the door open. And then I went and sat where... Uh, where the assistants were until Andy Melvin came in and Sue Ashworth and um, Darren Long and Rick Dovey, all the all the team that I had inherited, and then I realised you actually need to go and sit in this office now, and sit in <laughs> Vic's chair. And even though I'd been in there for six months, I'd sat at the meeting table to the right, and now here I was sitting in Vic's chair. But you know what? I think it was probably probably half an hour before. Um, I won't call them problems. Issues and challenges started presenting themselves to me. And then I quickly realized, okay, you got the job now, you've got to get on with it. But that doesn't mean that over the, over the coming years, there weren't times where there was uncertainty. Um, but, you know, we had a, Jeremy built a really, a really great team around him. And Jeremy and my relationship was very close. And he was always someone that I could turn to. Um, and Vic so you had that support. There. You had that support. 
I had that support, yeah. And I had the, I, I, when I started, I knew that I had Vic there too, should I need him. But what I tried to do right from the start was to, uh, to not go to him uh, very often. So I think probably in that first year, we probably met up for lunch three times. Uh, and I would always start our lunch, you know, after the, the obvious pleasantries and uh, health checks with the uh, first question I'd always put to him, which is, um, tell me what you've seen, which you hate. Because I figured I didn't need him to pat me on the back, right? I needed him to tell me what he disagreed with because, you know, he'd been in that job for 17 years and um, he brought it from, you know, a standing start to sport on a multi-genre channel through to, I think by the time he left, we were at three sports channels. So uh, I always used to say to him, tell me what you, uh, tell me what you hate, um, which I th always thought was the best way to, uh, to, uh, to approach it. And then actually right to the very end, the last time I saw dear old Vic was uh, three weeks before he, before he passed. And uh, I went down to, uh, went down to his place in, um, in Wiltshire and I said, and we went for some, uh, went for some lunch. And I said to him, um, uh, Vic, I'm going to change the channels from numbered channels to genre channels. This is where we moved from Sky Sports 1, 2, 3 and 4 to main event. Premier League, Football League, Cricket, Golf, et cetera, et cetera. And he looked at me. Vic never really gave much away, right, through his step. No, no, he didn't. And he said to me, uh, he said, I think you're absolutely mad, but I wish I was going to live long enough to be able to see it. And that oh, was man. kind of the endorsement that, oh, I, uh, that I needed. Yeah. Oh, my. Amazing. And another question that fascinates me, you've got this, this, this role one of the things that's been part of our whole industry, well, in fact, the human, the human condition of the last 20 years is technology, but nothing has been transformed more than sports television, than the whole world of technology. And you saw it with cricket in the early days in the 2000s and how it transformed the game. We've seen it with golf. I think we've seen it with VAR, but I'm not sure quite where that nets out. But this question, and, and it's brought um, by our sponsor, Sports Digital, who are very much a leading techie, sportsy, brandy kind of technical term type of thing, but they, they've been brilliant to support us, is I don't know how techie you are as a person, but technology is coming at you all of the time with people in that role and now at IMG with the latest, greatest thing. How do you separate the wheat from the chaff? How and what do you look like? We, we talk on this show a lot about how tech and data and different things are transformational, and they are. We all know that. But when you're in the position of being a buyer, how do you figure out what, what way um, is the North Star? So I think the, I think the North Star itself uh, has a subheading, which is what's the story? The thing, about, the thing about creating sports television is um, you're always trying to entertain, obviously, but you're, you've got to tell the story. And, of course, over the years, there were so many tech companies that came in. You know, you think of back to sort of Hawkeye in the early 2000s, but there were so many at that time, uh, and there were so many that we would discard because what do they do to enhance the story? Is it... Is it um, is it something that's tech and avant-garde for the sake of it? In which case, that's a gimmick. Or is it going to enhance the story? You know, if I look at sort of sports um, broadcasting now um, and uh, the introduction of AI technology means that you can, you can help create new stories. 
Um, if you just watch the USP, so again, it's the Monday after the Premier League, but also the Monday after the uh, finish to the USPGA. Um, and if you look at someone, you know, someone standing on the green going for a putt and it's 35 feet away and the likelihood of them making that is X percent, right? Based on um, data capture on that green, data capture by that player, data capture throughout the US tour, algorithm and algorithm kicks out a likelihood and the percentage likelihood that's helping tell the story and that's where that's where the buck stops right because if you plastered everything on screen that it, that, that came in your direction you'd, you'd end up with what um my old commercial director richard vero used to uh, call a um you know a fruit machine dancing teapots you know everything on screen that does Everything to prove that you're spending lots of money on on technology, but not much to tell the actual story. So the North Star is: Does it help the viewer better understand the sport uh, and the and the challenges uh, that it faces? Um, and we're not there yet. You know, I, I was talking USPGA. One of my great frustrations in golf, which is a great personal love of mine, even though I'm hopeless at it. Um, one of my great frustrations is. Why do I know, not know what club every man or woman is using uh, on every single shot on every single hole? Because I want that comparison. I, I want, you know, 150 yards out, I'm picking an eight iron. Right? If they're hitting a wedge, the commentator will quite often get it right or call it. But why don't we know that? Why are the clubs not chipped or why is the caddy not part of the broadcast saying, you know, on a little iPad saying or a little little phone pad or something, nominating the selected club because that helps tell the story. So there's a there's a long way to go. So the North Star is does it enhance the story for the uh, for the viewer on their on their device or on their TV? Um, and uh, and if it doesn't, if it's just there for a gimmick, then um, then I just don't think it. Yeah, uh, don't, don't think it matters. But Barney, so let's continue on this and coming back to your, your your old days of being the 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 producer and knowing what's going on. One of the big themes of the last couple of years has been this kind of like alternative type of presentation and commentary. Yeah. Whether it's Snoop Dogg, whether it's the Manning Brothers, yeah. you could even extend into Barstool, who obviously yesterday the PGA have got a live stream on. And of course now this massive contract for Tom Brady. Mm. Um if you were still um well, you are in many ways still in in, in this whole industry. How, how would you be assessing your commentary and punditry lineup mm. uh, in front of these trends? So, um, so a couple of a couple of things to answer that, Roger, if I may. Um, I think firstly, first thing you've got to do is consider the audience, right? And who is the audience, right? I, I'll, I'll. Um, I'll put this into my own family, right? My father is uh, in his uh, early 70s and is a mad sports fan. I've got two boys, 14 and 17. They're mad sports fans. So if I think through three generations of consumption habits, yeah. um, my dad yesterday will have watched um, the uh, the final day of the Premier League on his TV. Uh, I watched it on the TV, but also kind of looking at my phone and iPad a bit and who's saying what in social and what have you. My 14 and 17-year-old boys who are massive football fans didn't really watch it live. They were sort of sharing updates with their mates. They were sort of scouring there around on their devices, etc. So you've got three different types of people that you've got to uh, entertain. Uh, and that's just in my family, right? It could be four generations. And then there's also subsets of those generations. So 
you need to provide uh, for all. Number one thing you need is to tell the story and you've got to entertain. And as I said, that's, that's, that's different for, uh, for, for different uh, generations and different demos. Um, I think as, as we, where we stand now, I had a conversation, I'll give you, to answer it secondly, I'll give you an insight to a conversation I had with my director of content here at uh, IMG. We were talking about a football commentator. Uh, and he said, uh, oh, I've heard this person. I think they're pretty good. What do you think? And I said, uh, yeah, but all we keep doing is adding new blood to the same sort of roster. And, you know, you you rightly mentioned the Manning brothers or Brady's new deal with Fox and, you know, what Tony Romo has been doing for the last couple of years. Yeah. Right. Anyway, I said, uh, I said to, to my colleague, I said, rather than lining up who are the next co-commentators, shouldn't we be thinking of what commentary should be in the years ahead, right? Exactly. What, what should commentary exactly. be in, in 10 years' time or five years' time? And then let's work back from there. And I said, because since, you know, the BBC put two commentators together, and I don't know what date that was, but let's go back some time, of a lead commentator and a colour commentator. Since then, man's walked on the moon, uh, the internet's been invented. A lot has changed, right? There hasn't been much revolution in in football commentary. Therefore, isn't it time to think, what should the future look like? Is it a journalist and an ex-player? Is it two ex-players? Is it just three ex-players chatting? Is it interactive commentary between my children's generation and their colleagues? Is it two brothers like the Manning brothers? We should be thinking... What is, the, what is the future going to look like that's going to entertain people? And then back-timing it to right now and saying, we're going to be the ones that are going to pioneer those changes. Because the one thing for certain is, if, if the world carried on in, in any aspect, right, as it is today, then people will get bored and you will lose engagement and, and viewers. So it's, yeah. uh, it's time to challenge all those paradigms. And that's something that we did really well um, at Sky over uh, so many years. You did. You did. And then I would go even further to say this. Uh, listen, we could do another two hours here, but, you know, uh, I, I, I'm going to try and c condense everything I wanted to ask into this one question. There is no doubt that you and Scudamore won the battle for um, football leagues, not just domestically, but um, internationally. Mm. And there is a whole line of thought that I hold that your amazing success has created problems. Uh, one of the problems is the big gap to the league below the Premiership, the Championship. Yeah. And the other one is um, that you see every more every day that you have basically denuded the other great leagues in Europe, the Italian, the Spanish and the German with all the talent coming to the Premiership. Mm. Um, that's None of that is your fault. None of that is your fault. And as I say, we could discuss that for two hours and all the little milestones along the way there. But I want to ask you this because... This is what I really want to ask you. Hmm. Having been right at the front seat of all of this, Barney, what is your position on the regulator in football? And, you know, this idea that you can wind back the polarisation um, that um, has happened. Uh, uh, how do you, if you were in, in some kind of role there, how would you try and find the right solution to all of this? Well, look, I can give you the political answer, which is as the as the broadcaster, it wasn't really a um, a place to uh, to get involved in that, right? The the Premier League, as you said, hugely successful, um, and the ratio of international monies to domestic monies 
for the Premier League is so far ahead of any other league, um, certainly in Europe, right? And that is to uh, Richard Scudamore's and Richard Masters' great credit. Um, I actually did a bit of work before I joined IMG with uh, private equity who were looking at investing in some of the other European leagues. And the, the chasm between Premier League uh, and the other European leagues is so huge in terms of international revenues. It was, you know, how on earth, how on earth can you catch up? Um, and of course, one of the things you have to do is to look at windowing and scheduling and no point trying to put the big game in European League um, B up against 4.30 on a Sunday where you might have Liverpool versus Manchester City, right? So you need to you need to sort of think about how you can schedule. But you're right, so much of the money is coming to the Premier League. You know, only yesterday I was um, in a WhatsApp group with my, my dad, my brother and my uncle. Um, they were saying, you know, what is the uh, what is at risk here for Leeds and, and Burnley? And I said, well, they'll <laughs> if you take if you take uh, if you take Watford, for example, um, I think in the the overall table of distribution revenue um, this year for this season, they might end up with ninety million quid or whatever whatever it is, and then they'll get another chunk of a similar amount over the next three years for parachute payments. Um, which is an astonishing amount of money when they go down, which is why you're seeing the yo-yo effect of clubs that go down yes. come back up again, right? You can have, um, you know, just as when Leicester won the Premier League, right? You can have you can have anomalies, you know, Luton Town in the playoffs this year, um, Nottingham Forest, uh, you know, in the final up against Huddersfield. Huddersfield still clinging on to some parachute payment, but Forest haven't been in the uh, in the top flight for many many years, so it can you can still contend without the money that's been handed down. But is the is the gap and is the chasm too big? Would the regulator intervene and spread the money? Should the money be spread across all the 92 clubs um, in England? I think it's a really, really challenging question. And it's a real yeah. challenge for yeah. somebody who might be, might, you know, emerge as the uh, as the regulator of that because you've got so much at stake, right? You've got 20, you've got yeah. 20 clubs who say, Look at what we drive internationally, and that is to our brand of our league and the brand of our clubs. You know, disseminating that further down the chain means less for us. We're going to be less competitive. Does the ultimate value of the Premier League diminish as a result of that? If you know, if the clubs don't get beyond the quarterfinal stages of the uh, Champions League, what does that mean for the value of the league? So there's an awful lot to. It's a really complex one. Um, that you have to look, um, you have to look through a very independent lens, and whether they could get the right person uh, for that. Uh, well, yeah, you know, I think, I think, uh, yeah, you're right. But here's the way I look at it, and and you know, like you can see it as a socialism versus capitalism thing, you know, fabric of the game as opposed to creating a brand. I can't think of any other industry in the United Kingdom where such a success, i.e., the Premiership. Mm is considered distasteful so that you have to weaken it. You know, the premiership has dominated globally. And and for Britain, that's not that common anymore. No. And all of a sudden, you want to take that away. I mean, that would be my line. If I was Masters, Richard Masters or yeah. Angus at, at, at Leeds, wh wh show me where else British success has had to have a ball and chain put on it. Yeah. That is what I would say, Barney. Yeah. Yeah, and and... And they would also say, Roger, that the the system does work through the development of players and the acquisition of 
players, right? If you look at um, if you look at Bowen at West Ham, right? Or I mean, even within the Premier League, if you look at Southampton, right? They have they have a, a club who has a clear plan of developing players, like Brentford had, right? Until they came into the Premier League, develop players, and then they get they get picked up. So the money can cascade and disseminate through the system, uh, and I'm sure that's what the Premier League um, clubs would argue too. Um, you know, there is a there are probably there is a counter to that, which is look at uh, look at how many players from overseas there are in the in the Premier League. But the, the the cream will rise, and there are there are a lot of players. You know, the Jamie Vardy story is a a classic one, right? There are players who um, who are of value through the leagues that will get picked up by Premier League clubs. Barney, shifting tack a bit. So you worked for for a long time for. One of the organisations that has become ubiquitous with, with the sports industry, and particularly particularly with football, but a lot of other sports in Sky. You've then shifted to work for probably the, the original sports brand in terms of sports business with IMG and what Mark McCormack founded in the 60s. Mm. Tell us a little bit about how, how, if you're allowed to, how that role came mm. about. And it's obviously different. It's very much a global remit rather than more UK. And the, the kind of differences, similarities, and what you're setting to, to, to try and achieve in your tenure there. So I, um, when I finished at Sky, which was 31st December um, 2019, um, no, it was 2020. <laughs> Get him <in> my <laughs> I was, uh, I was, yeah, that's right. Yeah, gosh, through the midst of time, I spent too much time in the TV trial. So I think. Um, uh, I was very comfortable that I wasn't going to work full time anymore. Um, I joined a couple of boards, made a couple of investments, did a bit of advisory, private equity, and what have you. Because, particularly as you know, at the, unfortunately, that year that was hit by COVID, that was a time when um, SPACs were emanating. There was a lot of conversations around um, people getting hold of uh, sport and trying to be transformative. So it was a really interesting time to sit on the outside. Um, but then IMG approached me uh, probably September, August, September 2021 um, and uh, asked if I'd be interested in replacing um, Graham Fry, who was retiring. He'd been the uh, head of production at IMG for, uh, for many years, um, long established, hugely respected, um, great guy and a... Um, uh, now on the alumni, of course, of this wonderful podcast. Um, so, uh, so I was invited. Uh, I was invited to um, to come and come and chat to them. And the opportunity I saw was, uh, as the um, the telling of great sport is really important, and as the streamers are coming on board, whether it be just you know just in in this country, right, whether it be. Uh, whether it be DAZN, whether it be um, Discovery, and then who knows, you know, with Amazon and what have you, and who knows in the future, they don't want to build up big production teams. So where, obviously, I grew up with a very close relationship with governing bodies and rights owners, where we would do the deal for the rights and we'd produce the coverage at Sky. Um, well, now there's going to be a there's going to be a third partner in between the governing body and the streamers because. The streamers don't want to build up big production teams. They want someone to make it for them. So the opportunity to step into that and to create a, um, a production capability here for the future going forward, where there could be lots of opportunities, um, is what compelled me to, um, to, to come back in. The key difference, of course, is it's a B2B business. 
right? It's not B to C. So that what I was saying earlier about you know my waking thought and my sleeping thought was is are our customers getting value? And now for our customers, it was individual households, whereas now our customers will be um, uh, television companies or streamers that we might work for. So it's a bit yeah. different. So I don't own the end-to-end relationship with the with the viewer. So that's a that's a key difference that I've noticed. But actually, what I've also learned is right. I've inherited a great team from from Graham, and it's a really interesting organisation that is going through uh, significant change. Um, so what I have tried to push in through the teams is this notion that we might be just handing over this broadcast uh, to um, to our customers, which might be, you know, Premier League production. It might be the Premier League or it might be Channel 4 for Rugby League or whatever it might be. We should be thinking of the end user a bit more to help, you know, constantly uh, refine what we're doing, improve what we're doing. Um, so I brought a bit of B to C to this. I, I, I hope in terms of uh, in terms of our output. So presumably that's, that's the offering. Is that what's the story that you were talking about when you were at yeah. Sky? Is that that is yeah. you continue as the mantra, which is yeah. IMG Productions. What is the story that your Correct. end user will get via another uh, another broadcaster? Absolutely right. And it's a really look. It's a really competitive um, place, right? IMG Productions is competing with lots of. Um, smaller independent uh, production companies who uh, have been agile, creative, and and all those things. Um, so we need to, um, you know, we te- need to use the value of the whole organisation, the economies of scale, and all those things, and a huge overlay of creativity to uh, to put ourselves at the forefront of that consideration. So, you know, my. Um, my strategy presentation for for this year and what I've got the team to buy in is that I want us to be considered as us as the best um, production partners in sport, right? Rather than wanting to be the best production company in sport, right? Because I want us to be considered as partners of the organisation, and also partners of the end the end broadcaster um, or the end streamer. So uh, so that's look. It's a I'm six months in. Um, I'm loving it. I'd obviously had lots of interactions with IMG over the years, but more on the right sales side, not really on the um, production side. So, um, so I've really enjoyed the um, the, the change in scope uh, and environment. Well, um, I was going to ask what the, the preconceptions any of us who've worked in the sports industry and all three of us have is that everybody can have preconceptions of companies. Mm. And um, I know I did before I worked. IMG worked with me in a former life for, yeah. for many years. Have your preconceptions been shattered? Is it is it different? Is it the same? What, what, just in closing, I'm fascinated to know what, what yeah. you discovered in the culture because for 60 yeah. years, IMG has been always at the top table of the global sports industry. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's funny because um, uh, first day that I was here, the uh, HR director for sport um, had worked at Sky many, many um, years ago. And uh, so my first day, I... I met up with him and I said, right, tell me about attrition rates and tell me why people leave, leave the company. Give me the headline reasons. Uh, and, uh, and he gave me those. And then he said, uh, I said, do you enjoy it here? He said, yeah. He said, you know what you said to me when, um, when I left uh, uh, Sky 10 years ago? I said, oh, no, tell me. He said, uh, if you're going to IMG, uh, you'll need um, boat shoes, chinos, and TM Lewin shirts, right? And uh, I said, oh, my God, did I really say that? 
he said, uh, he said, yeah, you did. And I said, um, and go on then, tell me 10 years on. He said, a lot's changed. Um, and that's absolutely as I've found it. Now, I wasn't being, 10 years ago, I might've been churlish and, uh, uh, and, and negative and what have you. But the, um, but the truth is, joined an organization that you know adam kelly is president of img media and he's intent on creating a a different organization internally but also a different perception um of the uh, the organization so um it's all uh, it's all looking good as i as i as i see it it's moving in in the right direction uh doing good proper things like caring for our caring for our staff caring for our partners um not you know it's a commercial organization of course it is right but it's a commercial organization with a good soul well i think i mean you 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 can't you can't argue with any of those things and we, we've caught you at such a good time as, as you say you're six months in and one it's wonderful to have you on the show you know you're an old friend of roger and i so just to, to get some of your reflections of the past but maybe more excitingly your 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 hope for the future um, thank you for t- taking the time to come on the podcast. And also, right, right. From, from all of us, are you not insane? The very best of luck working for, for IMG. And I'm sure we will see the fruits of your labour in the months to come. Well, thank you very much. It's um, It's been great to uh, chat to you both. I really enjoyed it. It's a great industry we work in. We're very lucky. Yeah. Barney, we, we, we did just scratch the surface. I didn't get to anything that I wanted to. I wanted to get into BT and Discovery and, you know, the new boss and he's not going to be taking any prisoners. I wanted to talk to you about, whilst maybe not for a lot of listeners of this podcast, but for, from where I come from, that moment in time when Glasgow Rangers went bust and yeah. you were right in the middle of it. None of, we're going to have to do this again, Barney. <laughs> you know you know that... You know, we we are not nasty. You know, we're trying to educate the industry, uh, also the new people coming into it. So let's see where we are in six, nine months and see if you want to come back on it. It would be an absolute pleasure. Barney Francis, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Well, Giles, that was amazing. Just, just amazing. Um, a, A lot of people don't know the stories that go on behind the scenes and, you know, when you're the real... A power broker in the future of, of sport as Barney was and as Vic was before him, the stories that we, like I say, we just scratched the surface the stories that have to come out, we'll do another time, but he was, he has always been super impressive. You, you're so right and you you mentioned it earlier in the show is that media has always been the, the, the kingpin of the sports industry and it's interesting, sponsors often get a lot of airtime for their, their uh, influence within the sports industry, but what he has demonstrated and reminded probably all the listeners, sponsors come and go. They're, they can be important. They can have some influence if they do a good job. They, they can get recognised and, and maybe even loved by the, the fans. But in the politics of sport, and if you want to be in the politics of sport, television's where you want to be. That's where that's where yeah. the movers and shakers really lie. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, Giles, thank you for organising that. Uh, it was a great show. Let's let's wrap up. Uh, if anybody wants to follow us, you can follow us in the usual places. You can vote and review and whatever. Uh, Twitter, uh, entertain Dar. That's the word Dar. You can follow Giles at, at Giles Morgan seventy one, and you can follow myself at RPM Como, as in the lake, as in the lake. Roger, that was a lot of fun. Looking forward to, yeah. to the next show. Wonderful. Thanks, James. Thanks, Giles. Great job. Take care, my friends. 